This New America NYC event was recorded on June 10th, 2015, and is titled Under the Same Sky, From Starvation in North Korea to Salvation in America, and features Joseph Kim, author of Under the Same Sky, and Sue Mi Terry, Senior Research Scholar of the Weatherhead East Asian Institute at Columbia University. Joseph, Kwangjin. I learned your Korean name from the book. Um, before we begin, I would like to express my gratitude to you, having read your book, for sharing your very personal um, story with the world and with us tonight. I just want to make one small confession, which is that I used to work for the government for many years, and every time I covered the great famine, famine years in North Korea, I always sort of treated it academically, um, analytically, and you put a real face to this tragedy. Um, so now I feel like when we talk about, when we say up to 2.5 million people died from famine, it's 2.5 million people like Joseph's dad. When we say young North Korean women have been sold to, are being sold to China as a young bride or as slave, we're talking about young women like Joseph's sister. So, you know, um, I think it was Mother Teresa who said, if I'm, you know, if, if, if it's, we're talking about the mass, I will never act, but if I'm talking about the one, I will act, because I think she was referring to some weird human nature about how we can be so indifferent to this mass tragedy when there's, because we just can't comprehend the numbers. So by telling your very personal story, I think you're putting, giving us a face, a voice, an insight uh, to the suffering of the North Korean people and true modern day tragedy that is North Korea. So I wanted to start with that. Um, why don't we begin by you just telling us a little bit about, just from the beginning, because I was struck by the fact that first five years of your life, you're you know, you a normal boy, relatively normal as a North Korean boy, like had a family and um, loved by your parents till about 1994, 1995 when famine struck. Um, tell us about just the beginning, how, when did you know that your, yours and your family's lives were gonna just so fundamentally change? Hello. First of all, thank you so much for that great uh, introduction and thank you so much for uh, the kind, for your very kind words. And uh, I've been knowing uh, Professor Terry uh, for the past three years and uh, every time I've seen always very energetic but also very uh, mindful of giving me the right advice and uh, it's my honor to be on the here video and taking this uh, Q&A sessions. Um, to answer your questions, uh, when famine began, I mean, I was still very young, so uh, I didn't really understand uh, what was happening. But uh, before that, I go on to darker side of uh, what had happened in North Korea. I also wanted to share some uh, brighter side or the uh, part where I felt really uh, happy of living in North Korea. Because I think if 
if uh, often time when we talk about North Korea, always bring up the uh, the issues with the nuclear uh, crisis, political uh, conflicts, and the famines. I think it is important to bring those topics up, but because of that uh, political conversations, we also tend to lose images of a uh, uh, North Korean average people who actually have same hopes and dreams for a better future and for to be treated as equally as we would like to do. So going back to all my earliest memories, um, I was the youngest uh, children of two in the family, but I was also the only, only son. So if you, if you are Korean, you probably would understand how, I guess, there is a different uh, unintentional or maybe intentional treatment for boys. Uh, so I was already uh, born with that everything that I could ask for as a child. And um, my sister uh, was seven years older than me and uh, she uh, was extra extraordinary sister, which I didn't realize at the time. She was always uh, uh, loved me and uh, there was days when she uh, comes back from school, she would read me uh, uh, her textbooks, uh, not like math or the, the complicated parts, uh, the anecdotes of uh, uh, the fun parts and the sad parts. She was always uh, taking care of me. And one great example of uh, how great uh, she was as a sister is that when my father would come back from uh, returning from a business trip or uh, from other town, he would uh, come back with uh, uh, toys, uh, always for me. I don't know why he didn't do it for my sister. But uh, he also brought, uh, uh, let's say, 10 pieces of candies. And my father, uh, you know, he was a very well-educated person and he didn't want to treat uh, uh, us differently. So he would uh, divide into five, uh, have five pieces for me and five pieces for my sister. Uh, I would eat them right away, but my sister would always uh, eat one and uh, or sometimes offer to uh, our parents. And uh, she would uh, save two or three somewhere that I can find and she uh, would come back to me with that candy uh, when I'm sick or when I'm uh, you know, not happy of whatever the reason. So she was that kind of person. And I think growing up, I was really an uh, envy of uh, seeing my other uh, friends whose uh, siblings are there, like uh, one year was one or two years age apart where they like were fighting for more candies or stealing from each other's. I never had to go through. And I always thought that, uh, you know, I in a sense, I took it granted. So, and my father, of course, uh, was the only son. He would uh, always pick me up and uh, put me on his feet and like trying to imitate like the airplane things. I don't know how to explain that. But he would always pick me up and hug me and always um, uh, tell me that uh, he loves me. 
and my mom also, even though he was uh, not very um, health, uh, he she always uh, uh, you know showed her love, and so growing up, I think until the famine began, uh, I would say my life was uh, close to heaven. Not that I had been to heaven, but uh, you know my parents. I always knew that I was dearly loved, and we had enough food, we had a house, uh, we even had a, a television uh, from at home, and um, and I also could uh, uh, hang out with my uh, friends from neighborhood, it's not not worrying about what's the next meal is gonna be, or. In fact, we actually hated the lunch times because that's where my our, our parents would start calling us to come come back to home to uh, eat a meal. But so yeah, that was a pretty um, uh, sums up of my uh, earliest memory of being child before the famine. Um, but. Famine then hit, and what really struck me is how fast you had to grow up because I have two boys, and I have a seven-year-old boy and nine-year-old boy. So it was just incredibly painful reading your book because, you know, at seven years of age, he had to resort to stealing corn and whatever to survive. On his ninth birthday, he didn't, you have no food to eat, you're like on the verge of starvation, and... I just had a you know ninth birthday for my boy, and you can't even imagine birthday kids' birthday parties now, particularly in New York City, you know, with the goodie bags and so on. So it just really struck me, like in another part of the world, like he, he had nothing to eat. That's ninth birthday. By twelve, his dad dies of starvation. His his sister is sold to China. His mother leaves, and then he becomes like. Wandering Sparrow, right? Um, an orphan on the streets. Could you talk to us a little bit about what it was like um, in the streets? How did you survive? What did you have to do? Sure. Um, I think that was a great point that, uh, you know, that you said earlier that, uh, uh, that many North Korean uh, kids, including myself, we had to grow up uh, faster than we had to. I think that famine, uh, you know, not I think, it definitely affected uh, my life, but also lives of other children and other, so many North Koreans' lives tremendously. Um, You know, when the famine began, uh, we could not be a child again, you know, like we could not complaining about better food, because while our parents could not provide uh, uh, much to it. I think the reason why I could not complain to my parents or crying out was that uh, even though I was very young, like I could see that uh, my parents, uh, you know, as for kids, I mean, at least for me growing up, my, my mom and my father was everything to me. I mean, when they smile or when they have, they are happy, I would be happy too, or, you know, and, but I could always see that uh, their face expressions or concerns was, uh, it was there on their face. And 
I think I could not complain it because uh, I was confused what was going on because uh, that was not the types of uh, uh, faces that I saw from my parents. So, and so I think in that regard, I think um, I guess we had to uh, grow up and understand and. Uh, the process of uh, losing family and becoming homeless, uh, it was really, um, I think it was difficult because it was unexpected. Because uh, I, I've seen uh, homeless kids on the street growing up uh, while I had my own family. So I always had sympathy for them, but I never really, uh, did any, um, took initiative because uh, first I was still a kid and I, our day-to-day life was struggling enough too. But uh, I never really thought that I would become one of them actually. And so when my father uh, died of starvation when I was 12 years old, um, there was not much time for our family to be sad uh, take a time to uh, grieve or like mourn about the lose. I, my mom, as a single uh, parent, said, has she become, she had to start make sure take care of uh, her daughter and her son. And uh, as a result, because I mean the government didn't care whether my father died of starvation or not, or whether my entire family is gonna be uh, throughout on the street or not. So everyone was on, on their own and that was not exceptional for my mom either. So my mom um, decided to go to China with my older sister, uh, hoping that she could make some money and uh, find some food to return to North Korea so that we could have a, a life, uh, have a family to, as uh, and live together as a family. But um, some probably know the situation in North Korea, in China. Chinese uh, authorities don't really see North Korean uh, defectors as a, a political uh, asylum list or refugees. They rather see them as a, uh, economic migrations, which is, I don't think it's a right term. But uh, my mom, not having any friends or any uh, family or, um, you know, as she had to make a very difficult decision to uh, sell my sister to uh, hand her, my sister to a Chinese broker, uh, believing that she would have a better, she would have a chance for a better life uh, being living with a Chinese man in China, then returning to North Korea, where uh, her faith would be unknown. And I, in retro perspective, I know it was also, I know she also made a sacrifice so that she could at least uh, save me. But when she came back, she um, tried to explain to me what her reasons, but uh, it was really uh, difficult for me to understand I was only 12 years old and uh, 
you know, it was so difficult for me to process the, you know, selling. I mean, just not if not being able to see my sister again because uh, when she was leaving to China, I thought that I would see my sister again, like in few days, because uh, the idea for the concept of not living with my sister was never in my head, because I never had been apart from my sister in life. Uh, and now all of a sudden then my mom tells me that uh, I want, you know, can't see my sister at least the moment. Um, one thing I guess I wish now is that I hope that I was uh, mature enough uh, to embrace her um, or try to understand her reasons, at least not being um, uh, being so mean to my mom. Um, and that's what happened to my sister and uh, my mom. Uh, again, uh, she didn't have much option to succeed or provide uh, uh, means to survive as a uh, family. So she tried to go back to China, but she uh, unfortunately got caught. Uh, arrested in, in North Korea before she even made to uh, China and as a punishment she was put in the prison labor facility uh, where she uh, was sentenced and that's the last thing that I know about my mom and I know in my uh, TED talk and uh, even to my even closest friends I always told them uh, when they asked me like what happened to your mom and what happened to your sister? That question came up on and on, on and on. And I always told them that my mom and my sister disappeared uh, one day. It's actually, that's exactly what I said on my TED. And the reason why I was not, I did not want to tell that uh, the truth was that I was afraid that uh, people would judge my mom and uh, I, you know, I, it was just never, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't think it was necessary, necessary for me to uh, share that story if I hadn't have to. Uh, but the reason why I decided to uh, reveal the truth was that while I was working with my co-author, Stephen Tarty, he kept asking to like, first day time he was like, Oh, I told him like, oh, you know, they just disappeared one day. It's like, okay, and then move on to next question. But then on and on, like he just kept coming back and like, uh, what happened to your mom? And without telling the truth, it was uh, difficult for me to uh, make a complete picture for him. I either had to make up a story or I have to tell the truth. I mean, but I didn't want to do the extra work to make up. And uh, so I told him just uh, what had happened. And luckily that uh, my uh, co-author, Stephen Talti, was really understanding. Uh, I remember he was at the Starbucks telling him and he was very uh, understanding and uh, thankful, uh, thanked me to share it. And But now the reason I also wanted to share this story is that over the years, I've come to realize this is not just my story, 
but the stories of a uh, story of millions of people in North Korea today. And North Korea is a country where it is harsh and desperate enough for uh, to break up even family closest family ties. So I hope that you do understand. Um, and I hope that you would not uh, make uh, judgment for my mom, because it was not just my mom, but uh, I'm, you know, I know of the fact it's, uh, there is so many other families who are in the same situation, but they just never have the same opportunities that I, as I have now to share, uh, share it. So, as a result, I became homeless after my mom was uh, arrested. And that's where I started learning uh, how to give up my pride and how to give up uh, a dignified life, I guess. Uh, it, was, it's, it was really difficult for me to open up my mouth and uh, being able to say out loud, uh, can I have a leftover uh, soup? Because uh, I am, I was, uh, and I am still, uh, was very introverted, uh, and, you know, going to school, even in uh, my, from my classmates, in class, I couldn't really say, uh, hi to my classmates, uh, that as often. So it was really difficult for me to, uh, start asking, uh, leftover food from the strangers. But I had to do it and I found the courage to do it because um, while I was uh, mingling around the train station, I've seen some uh, homeless kids actually uh, dying away and uh, wither away and uh, eventually uh, lose their li life. And that really scared me because uh, I realized if I don't uh, speak up, I would also become one of them. So that was the beginning of uh, my uh, I guess daily life as a homeless and uh, yeah and I lived a somewhat similar uh, life for about three years until I, I escaped to China first of all I'm really glad that your co-writer made you open up I hope you open up and talk about your sister in an honest way because it is absolute tragedy and that is what's going on young North Korean women being sold to China and that desperation and in his book it's everyone needs to read it it's just the way he describes his sister she comes across as such a beautiful young person so it just you're again through your story you're saying telling all of us larger picture about North Korea so I'm um, I'm glad that you include that it was very moving and powerful um, I want you to tell the audience about the, the day that you, your sister um, left for China, but let's talk a little bit about the day, well, how you decided to defect to China. It was kind of, it just came suddenly, it was not anything really premeditated, at least in the book. It just kind of was a spontaneous decision. Could you talk to us a little bit about your decision to defect and how you escaped to China, and when you got there, your overall first impressions of China? Sure. Um as you might have read from the book, uh, you know, like there was few reasons uh, why I left 
I decided to make a decision. Uh, one of them uh, for sure was that uh, I was thinking that um, or hoping that uh, if I uh, come back uh, with some money from China, I, would, I might be able to buy uh, my mom's uh, freedom by uh, bribing local uh, authorities. That was number one reason. And also, it was I was trained from innocence over three years. I tried everything I could, but uh, you know, I felt like that was a moment where I didn't know what to do, and I also didn't have uh, courage to like or enough strength to tell me like it's okay, Joseph. I will leave another day, and I think I was really at the moment where you know I did, I wanted to take a risk and. And in, in terms of uh, uh, process, escape process, escaping process, I really wanted to thank you know whoever that is God or Jesus or whoever that is you know because without you know their help I I don't think I would it was more, nothing more than a miracle because uh, I didn't bribe the local I mean the security uh, guards from the border. And uh, I definitely, uh, I also didn't have that money. But the reason why I decided to cross the border during the day was that I I hoped or and I realized that uh, I lived in that town where it was really closer by the border, where I heard so many stories of uh, other people who uh, attempt to escape, but uh, some uh, some made it, some didn't. Not some, most of them didn't make it, but I never really heard anyone try that during the day. And uh, so I was like, and it was also Kim Jong Il's uh, uh, birthday week, so which means even uh, thieves like would not do anything about it because knowing that in the systematically the entire country supposedly uh, raised their security level to. Um, higher than the normal days. So, you know, like going, escaping to China during those weeks was like not really uh, ideal or recommended. And I was thinking like, I mean, this has been over 10 years, but, you know, I was, you know, thinking that maybe the border guards would have been, they already, or every year must have been same I mean, no one would try, so I was. Uh, I hoped that they, it was the case where uh, the security guard would not expect anyone to do kind of stupid things that I did. So I started walking uh, through on the, uh, the train track, and then as soon as I got closer to the border, I just ran down. And on, and then I uh, ran across the river when the water is frozen, and it was like really like me like 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 noon or like really a, a day where like I don't think and there was no one there, so I was able to cross, and uh, that's I guess somewhat um, different uh, story than uh, the traditional I guess escape. And but I try not to take this uh, 
I try not to credit this for myself or for my uh, uh, intellectual or anything like that because I've seen uh, so many uh, friends and people who was, who was much, much smarter than me. And uh, But the reason why I think I'm here today is that uh, because I was uh, surrounded by with good people and so by any means I was trying, I was, it was not, um, I was just telling the fact but it was now any means to uh, show who like my, I guess, intellectual ability. And uh, once I got into China, that's where it was really deep difficult for me because uh, I never thought that I would not have, uh, I would have difficult time uh, um, left, I mean, begging food because knowing that China, if not surplus food, at least have enough food to uh, sell to strangers. And so think I was totally expecting that as long as I make it to China, I will be able to get some rice and some uh, you know, used clothing. But I, I started, uh, went to door to door for leftover rice and they, not only they refused my uh, favor, but they gave me that looks and it was just, you know, not very welcoming. And I just didn't understand why, because um, when I was uh, homeless back in North Korea, with among, among my uh, homeless uh, friends, we knew that people, not many people often share their food because, you know, if, if they share their food, it means their child has to uh, suffer from hunger too. So we tend to or try to understood them, but going to China where I knew that food was uh, accessible, it was really difficult for me to understand. Not. I don't think I tried to understand them. I think my first reaction was so, I felt really betrayed uh, from human natures, I think, in general. And, um, but of course there were some other uh, great people also who uh, eventually helped me. And the first, uh, to your question, what was my first, uh, uh, impression. I guess that was my first impression. It was just so being lost, not being able to understand or rationalize their uh, uh, responses. But I think once uh, later I went to other bigger cities like Yanji, uh, Tumen, like the most shocking thing was uh, having seen seeing that uh, lights during the night time, well, it was completely, it was so bright that like it was not much different from the daytime. So that was the first like surprising. And later on, I also started learning or the new trend in China was to uh, lose weight. And uh, that was, <laughs> I like, I was like, didn't really get it at time because I was like, you know, because in North Korea, if you have a, a big uh, stomach, it means that you're uh, rich. So everyone wanted to have that, but versus in China, they wanted, don't want to have it. So it was probably most uh, somewhat funny and sad part.
And from China, so it's really interesting your comment about you just, so in North Korea, you beg, you understand why people didn't share their food because it means they will be starving and their children will be starving. But there's plentiful food in China and they didn't share with you and you just couldn't understand it. That's interesting observation. I want you to tell the audience how you got the name Joseph, but then also, um, then talk to us a little bit about how you got to, from China, come to the United States. And then when you got to the United States, what was the most um, surprising thing about the US? What was your first impression about the US? Um, so I went to China not being able to find my sister and uh, not, knowing have, not knowing anyone from there. And it was, you know, the only option was left was to uh, sleep in the mountains during the night or like abandon the house in the, you know, uh, uh, rural uh, side of China. And um, I lived like that for about two weeks and uh, luckily later I found, uh, uh, I can't specify the church name of the church, but I found a church where they uh, were generous enough to uh, let me stay uh, in their uh, hotel where they had a room and, and but of course, like I couldn't stay in that church uh, forever because uh, when they, uh, if Chinese authority finds out, then the church also has to fi uh, pay a big, uh, pay significant, uh, uh, yeah, fines. So like they, my uh, church friends were trying to look for a sponsor who would uh, take me in to their house and give, uh, I guess, more sustainable uh, shelter and food. And, but of course, uh, no one really wanted to have a teenager boy because first it is dan uh, danger. Uh, it, I guess could interpret it as uh, inviting a, a, dan uh, a danger at their house. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, the guys were not really popular in China. So like, um, then no one really uh, wanted to, you know, for females, I think have some, I wouldn't say advantage, but it's more exploitable, let's put it in that way. So my friend had really hard time finding a sponsor. And one day she came back so excited and saying, I found a, a, a very a senior um, Chinese elder, Korean Chinese. Uh, elder, she was like, she wanted to take you and, you know, their home, but there's only one condition. And I was like, okay, what's the, what's the condition? And uh, the condition was that she would only take me if it is God's will for us to be together or live in the same house. I mean, I know, I knew she was really a devoted Christian, but you know, like, how would you, like, prove that it is God's will? So, uh, as I guess her in her mind, uh, I will go to Joseph's room and I will ask him, uh, "Are you Joseph?" And if he says yes, then I will consider that is that as God's will for us to be together. If I and if I don't say yes, then she would just turn around and walk away. 
And uh, so my friend uh, told me to uh, say yes when she comes in. And um, <laughs> so I became Joseph. <laughs> sort of. And, uh, but I was really sad. I, I was almost crying because, uh, you know, I gave up literally everything I could. There was nothing left that defines who, who I was as a person, except the name that my father uh, gave to me. So it was really emotional for me to just hearing that uh, conditions. And I think I was started crying and she kept saying, you know, I understand. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't know why. It's a beautiful name and it so fits you. You're like, so Joseph. <laughs> Talk to us about the US once you got to the you know, United States, um, sort of how you got here. And then what was your first impression of the United States? Because you ended up in Virginia. It was not happening Brooklyn, but in <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. Um, not to disparage Virginia, I spent some time in Virginia, great state, but still it's not New York. So <laughs> what was your first impression of the United States? Okay. Also, how you got here uh, okay. from China? Um, through that, uh, actually, a uh, funny story. Um, I mean, the lady who asked me to give up my name actually turned out to be the greatest uh, uh, person I could ever meet. She was constantly looking for uh, uh, people to help me uh, provide uh, uh, or help me to go to South Korea or somewhere else not in China. And she eventually found a Chinese, no, South Korean missionary uh, who was initially coming uh, to my house to give me some allowance and give some aid. And long story short, she was able to connect it uh, with uh, an NGO called uh, Link Liberty in North Korea. And a uh, few months later, I was moving to Link's shelter. and waited for a couple of months and then later uh, actually uh, Adrian Hong, uh, he's, uh, I call him Hong here, but uh, he's here today and came uh, at the time he uh, was running that organization and he came to our shelter and asked me uh, if I want to go to America and I said yes and um, and he started uh, preparing for the trips and he uh, successfully conducted us to American consulate in China. I can't provide specific routes and the details of how I got into consulate because of the security issues. Uh, but so that was the, uh, that's how I got into, landed into American, I guess, um, I guess freedom land. And from in, uh, consulate, I waited about four months until that uh, doc document to be processed. And then uh, in 2007, um, in February, I came to uh, the States. And uh, I guess the first impression uh, of America was really disappointing. And let me explain to you why I say this. Um, <laughs> While I was waiting in the American consulate, there was a, a car, uh, a sedan, that uh, was for supposedly, I guess, the general uh, 
counselor in that building. So and it was the car. I really like liked that car a lot. So I like every time I went to see that car in the morning and like it's like always like the. What was the car? Ford. Oh, Ford. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, uh, so I was like, wow, this is great. And I was like wanting to have it. And then once I got into my first, uh, I had a, a connecting flight at uh, uh, LALX. And um, I realized that uh, looking through the uh, uh, windows, glass windows from uh, inside airports, there were so many uh, faults that cars were uh, used as for being as a taxi. And I knew like, you know, taxis are not the greatest cars. So that's why I was like, oh, you know, like I was kind of disappointed that I've been dreaming to have a car that is being used as a taxi, like in the States. Um, that was the first, literally first um, impression. But uh, of course then, uh, I expected to be somewhere like in New York, where it's tall buildings. But then I found out later that uh, I was sent to Richmond, Virginia, where uh, there, literally there was a house in the middle of a forest. Where there, uh, like, you know, like the next morning, I think I woke up and I saw a deer like lingering around in my backyard. I thought that I did something wrong to come there. But um, that was the pretty much first impression. And uh, it was just a little bit difficult for me because uh, knowing, I mean, came to America, but then I didn't know what to do like from there on. But uh, yes. But you did well and you got on an honor roll eventually. Um, and did very well there, right? Yes, for the <laughs> first three years, and uh, senior year was somewhat. He different. was very um, fearful of being a student because he felt that he didn't have proper education, obviously, in North Korea as an orphan wandering the streets and so on. By the way, before we move on, it was really interesting to see that he's actually a very good fighter, which is, I found out in the book. I'm like, you're so gentle. I know him as such a gentle being. I'm like, wow, he's some feisty. He's like, he fights and he's, you're good at it, <laughs> right? Not anymore. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to, I want to open up to the audience because I know you guys have a lot of questions and I want this to be interactive. But let me just ask you another question and I'll open up to the audience. Um, well, instead of a question, why don't you, could you share with the audience the night that you spent at the Edinburgh airport after you gave that TED talk and you decided to spend a night at the airport and you had that very inner internal conversation with your sister that you don't know where she is and that kind of explains the title of the book as well. Could you talk to us about that night and the conversation you had with your sister? Sure. Um, no, I, it was a uh, Friday after I finished my uh, uh, trip from Europe after I attended attend a TED conference and I, you know, I mean, I had money, but I, you know, didn't want to book a hotel because there was unexpected delay for my flight and uh, it was until the next morning. So I decided to, no, no, for, forget about delay parts. Uh, I don't think that was the case. But anyways, I decided to... Uh, sleep over a night in the airport because uh, 
you know, I never, since I came to America, I never really like had the similar life that I had in North Korea. I mean, obviously. So like I kind of wanted to, you know, want to just try out again, like sleeping uh, in the airport because my first night sleeping in the, becoming a homeless, after I became homeless in North Korea, my first or second night that I slept was in the uh, train station. So, and definitely that was not the pleasant moment. And, and I just wanted to go back to think about where I was before thinking what I have now. And so I started laying down on the, uh, the bench and trying to sleep. And through the window, uh, the glass window, I seen uh, beautiful stars. And that's where I started um, having a, not real conversation, but uh, imagination or, I don't think that's a word. It's imaginary conversation. Yeah, imaginary conversation with my sister. Um, I used to do it, did this a lot in back in North Korea, but once come came to America, I mean, you know, everything became so deep, like, Fiji, like, had to catch up the language, culture, so didn't really spend much time, as much time as I did uh, uh, in North Korea. And I started laying down, like, where I've come from over the years and uh, started uh, talking to my sister, like, asking, well, well, are you, and uh, are you, well, or are you being treated? And half, half wishing, half uh, wish, but with, but also uh, just somewhat conversa- uh, conversationally, I was like hoping that uh, you have uh, find a good uh, Chinese man who loves you and take care of you. And uh, after I made my TED talk, I think everyone really praised me and everyone really thanked me uh, for sharing that story and also like somewhat called me like, you know, amazing or heroes. But, uh, you know, I think I talked to my sister that, yes, uh, I just finished uh, this conference and uh, everyone told me that uh, I was a hero, but uh, the true hero in my life was uh, is you. And uh, so that was like uh, the conversation that I had. And um, I think the, the sky has some sort of uh, that property uh, that reminds of me of my sister, and that was the uh, conversation I had. And that even though you don't know where she is and how she's living, you're both under the same sky, right? Um, do you miss North Korea? And yes, I do. I definitely do. I mean, it's a country that I was born, and it's a country that I still uh, care about. Yes. What do you miss most about it? Friends, uh, but also there is there was a, a pear tree that my father and I planted uh, when I was like in elementary school, and that tree was about to have uh, produced fruits uh, in like after about few years later, but which I never really got to see. And I some I often like think about whether that tree is still alive or not, because even if I go back there would be nothing much that I can say, oh, this is my home and this is where my family is. But I mean, I think being able to touch and see that tree will at least give me 
hopefully keep me some comforts. I don't know. So thank you so much, everyone, for coming. And thank you to Joseph for sharing the story. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.